Welcome to another podcast from the BCC team. Our aim is to bring you a message that will help you live a better, more God-centered life. For more information, go to bcc.church. Kingdom influence, this is what we're talking about. And week three, how can my kingdom influence grow? Interesting title. I heard a story about a zoo. And in this zoo, there was a a gorilla called Gabe. And the gorilla was a great hit with all the people that visited the zoo, especially the little kids. But then suddenly, (coughs) this biggest attraction in the zoo uh, passed away. And um, the zookeepers were very upset about this because this was one of the major attractions in the zoo. So they kept it quiet. And they had a little uh, discussion together and they nominated one of the zookeepers to go and hire a gorilla outfit. (coughs) So I know exactly what he feels because several times in my life I've been nominated to hire a gorilla outfit as well. But that's another story. (laughs) I've done a few gorilla grams in my time. He nominated to hire a gorilla outfit, and so he dressed up, and he had the whole lot with um, little paws, or if gorillas have paws, and and the outfit suit, and the the mask, and everything, and he went in the cage. And after a while, he really got into it quite a lot. He was um, swinging around um, on the branches, he was um, grabbing bananas, and things like that, And, um, and he was quite a big hit. Uh, But then one day, he really started to overdo it a little bit too much. His exuberance took over, and he swung just a little bit too far, and he swung right out of the gorilla enclosure into the enclosure next door that had the lion in. (coughs) And he landed there, and he had this little whimper, Help! The lion saw him, and the lion sauntered over. If that's how lions saunter. (laughs) The lion got right up to him, right in his face, and said, Shh, be quiet, you'll get us both fired. (laughs) As you might realise, that's not actually a true story. (laughs) But I think it's important to get something straight before we begin, because we can all feel like we're imposters dressed in a suit, in a cage or a church where we don't belong. And we might feel we're imposters and we don't actually feel we belong in the kingdom of God at all because of the things we've done or the things um, we think about ourselves. And you know that's true. We just don't belong. That's the whole point because it's God's grace that allows us to come into his kingdom in the first place. It's his grace. We don't deserve to be here um, But it's God's grace that allows us to be here. It's through Jesus' death and his resurrection and our faith, putting our faith and our putting our allegiance into Jesus that allows us to enter God's kingdom. So let's embrace it and let's get on with what it means being church. BCC's vision is to bring growing kingdom influence and transformation to every area of our lives, community, and beyond. 
Last week, Brian was speaking and he gave a definition of what uh, the kingdom was. And he said the definition of the kingdom was the kingdom is where the king is. So if that's the definition of what the kingdom is, then how can we simply define what kingdom influence might be? Well, I guess you could say it's defined as us helping spread or establish that kingdom. Or we could say kingdom influence is us somehow bringing the king into life's situations. I think that's a a simple way of looking at what kingdom influence can be. At the end of... um, See, it's all about letting Jesus reign in us, hearing what he says and putting those things into practice. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 24, um, Jesus says about all the things he'd, he'd said earlier, Who hears the, if you hear these words of mine and put them into practice, then you're like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. When we're filled with his spirit, we become God's hands and feet on earth. There was a a lady called Teresa of Avila, or I don't really, I'm not very good at pronouncing things like that, but she was a Spanish noblewoman in the 16th century who chose a monastic life and became a bit of a mystic. Now, I can't vouch for everything she said or did, but I like this quote. She said, Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on the world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. It's a very profound thing from the 16th century mystic lady. Now, you know, the first time that the term Christian was used was in Antioch. And we can read about that in Acts eleven twenty six, 26, where it says, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught a significant number of people. Now it was Antioch that disciples were first called Christians. Who were they called Christians by? They were called Christians by the people in Antioch who had never seen anything like this before. Because in Antioch, you had Jews meeting together with Gentile Greeks, all worshipping God in some sort of strange community. There was no word to describe what they were. They didn't fit anything that anybody had ever heard about before. So the people who saw them called them Christians, those of Christ, those who belonged to Christ with Christ as their master. It was a bit of a derogatory term, I think, but the Christians embraced it because they were happy to be called servants of Christ. And as servants of Christ, what were they doing? They were doing Christ's work on earth. That's how people knew they were servants of Christ. They were like little Christs. That's who the Christians were. They got their reputation for being servants of Christ, doing the master's work on earth. They were, in effect, his hands, his feet, and his eyes. They defied all the world's categories. In Galatians, it says there's neither Jew nor gentle nor slave or free, 
That's exactly what they were doing. They were a counter-cultural revolution. That's what Christianity is, a counter-cultural revolution of little Christs entering the world. Well, did you realise what you joined? (laughs) Did you realise it? You thought you'd just come to church, but you're joining a revolution. Amen. And Jesus describes what these little Christs are going to be like. Jesus describes what their influence is going to be like in the Sermon on the Mount. This is even before they're called Christians. This is when they're just the followers. And he describes what this influence is like in the terms of salt and light. And this is taken right from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount after Jesus has been doing all the blessed section. He then says, you guys, you are the salt of the earth, he says. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made more salty? Again, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Then he says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So to increase our influence, we need to stay salty and to keep shining. That's what we do. First of all, let's look about what being salty is all about. There are several properties of salt that we can associate with a Christian life. And I'm going to go over six of them with you now. Salt. First of all, salt is a preservative. Salt acts as a preservative and it can slow down decay, for example, in a piece of meat. And it does this because it's got an antibacterial um, property. Salt, Salt kills the bacteria by literally sucking the water out of the bacteria. That's what it does by a process of osmosis. You can look that up later. That's the end of part of your science lesson for today. <laughs> but if I've got a piece of meat over here and I've got a piece of salt over here, it's not going to make any difference. If I have a piece of meat over here and a piece of salt over here, it's not going to make any difference. What you've got to do with that salt to make a difference is you've got to sprinkle it on the meat. And not only sprinkle it on the meat to preserve it, this is what they had to do in the olden days before you had your fridge. <clears throat> you not have to sprinkle it in, you had to rub the salt into the meat as well. You used to have to get your hands a bit dirty. I think that is what God is saying here. We are salt, we are preservative, but we've got to rub our lives in to the people around us. It's no good us just sitting in church and saying, I'm salt. I'm going to act as a preservative to my family, to my church, to my, to my uh, neighbourhood. We have to rub our very lives into those people around us. 
And it makes the difference. It makes the difference. Because as Christians, we can act <coughs> as a preservative to the people around us. We can act uh, by our morals, by our values and our integrity to change the very climate of the people around us. I've seen this in work. It's not that I've got a swear box and I've stuck in the middle of the office. I don't think that would have go down very well. I'd probably make quite a lot of money, but that's another thing. <clears throat> but I, I've seen something that when you have certain um, values or integrity about you, it can make a difference to people around you. I've had somebody say to me, shall we do so-and-so, or maybe we shouldn't do that because they knew that was lying and they knew what I would think about it. Just our very presence, our values and our integrity because God is moving through us into those situations. We can act as a preservative around um, with the people that are around us. But we only act as a preservative. We may rub our lives against and in those people around us. That's what we need to do. Also, salt is a seasoning. Now, second science lesson for the day. Did you know there are five basic tastes? There's salt, sweet, sour, bitter, and something called umami. That's not my mammy. But <laughs> uh, it's the taste of glutamic acid, and it's from a Japanese word meaning pleasant, savoury taste. Now, I never knew that before, so I'm going to go and have lots of umami lighter because I like protein and meat, and that's the taste of that. Um, but it says that salt is used as a universal flavour improver because what it can do is it can reduce bitterness. It, when it's in small quantities, it reduces bitterness and it enhances sweetness. And even in, in high concentrations, it can uh, suppress sweetness and enhance umami, <laughs> whatever that was. But I love this, that salt can reduce bitterness and enhance sweetness even in small quantities. And you know, that's what I want to do as a Christian in my relationships. I want me to be able to reduce bitterness and enhance sweetness just by being there. When you walk into a room, do people go, oh no? <laughs> or when you walk into a room, do people go, oh yeah? For Christians, it should be a, oh yeah. We're walking into a room because we are, just by our presence there, we can reduce bitterness and enhance sweetness because we are showing love, compassion to people around us. And there's something a little bit different maybe about us. You know, one of the things that I try and do, and that is because the small things count, I always try and smile and be friendly to the cleaner at work. I never try and walk past them or ignore them or treat them as a lesser person. I always engage with them, say, hello, how are you? It's very difficult because they're Italian and they don't speak very good English. But then the other day, she gave me this little coffee thing for me to use. For you, for you. <laughs> I don't quite know what to do with it yet, but I've got it on my desk. <laughs> I think it, there's somewhere in the building, there's somewhere I can put this to get a really nice, tasty cup of Italian coffee, but I'll have to find it. <clears throat> but we can bring sweetness 
we can reduce bitterness just by our presence. Because when we've got God by his Holy Spirit within us, it makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. There's a verse in Colossians that says, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let's season our conversation with salt. Let's reduce the bitterness. Let's have sweetness. Let people listen and enjoy and take on what we say. Salt also makes one thirsty. I know this after maybe having some very salty meals. I feel like I want to keep on drinking more and more and more. That's because there's a thirst. This is science lesson number three. Thirst centre in your brain and it registers the extra salt flowing around in your blood and it triggers this response saying you've got to have a drink, got to have a drink. But you know, when we're acting like this as a preservative, when we're acting like seasoning, do you know what? We're making people thirsty because they're seeing something in us that they might not have themselves. And when they see the Spirit's presence in our lives and the difference it makes in our lives, it makes people thirsty. They want to know, why are you happy in this situation that I would be totally devastated in? How can you cope with that pressure that I couldn't cope with? Salt makes people thirsty. I love it that in the story of John the Baptist in the Bible, John the Baptist didn't have to put out flyers for people to come and hear him speak. He didn't have to put out notices or anything like that. Word got around and people left the towns and went into the wilderness to hear him speak. They were physically thirsty, probably in the wilderness, but they were spiritually thirsty, so they were drawn to what he had to say. In the same way, crowds gathered around Jesus. Jesus made people thirsty for the truth and the things that he said. So also, we are the salt of the earth because we are embodying Christ, and we should be making people thirsty too by our very lives. Salt is painful to an open wound. I don't know if you've ever sprinkled salt on a cut, but it hurts. It hurts. Now, I don't think this quality is a license for us to start saying things to other people that deliberately hurt them. However, sometimes as Christians, we are called to say things that do hurt other people because we are meant to be speaking the truth in love, and sometimes we have to be prophetically speak into different people's lives. In Acts 2, 37 to 47, um, we have uh, the, the whole lot of Peter preaching um, to uh, the first people at Pentecost. And it says this thing, when the people heard him preach, well, after they heard it, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other possibles, brothers, what shall we do? What do we have to do to be saved? They were cut to the heart. Sometimes we act as salt and we need to cut people to the heart and hurt them. It's almost like a, a pain, but it's for their own good. That's what Jesus will do. But this is not a license to go and start upsetting people. But sometimes this is true. We are sought. Some of the times the words we say, they're hard. 
to some people and they will hurt, but it's for their good. Then in this passage, it says about salt losing its flavour. So he's saying that there's salt that is effective and there's salt that's not effective. It's not doing what it's meant to do. There's salt that is useful and there's salt that is not so useful. And when it's not useful, it's thrown away. But question, can salt lose its flavour? The answer, no. Question, what does Jesus mean then? (laughs) Salt can't lose its flavour because salt is a really simple compound. This is science lesson number four, sodium chloride. And salt is salt. (laughs) You can't make it not be salt. If it's salt, it is salt. It can't lose its flavour. However, it can appear to lose its flavour. This is an encouragement and a warning because the salt that people used in the Bible times wasn't pure salt like we have now. It could have been uh, made from rock salt or it could have been gathered from, uh, from marshlands and it would have other impurities and things with it. And when you had salt like that with all these other impurities in, you had to be very careful how you kept it because if you got a little bit damp, a little bit of condensation, then the actual salt... Co- components, the sodium chloride could dissolve easily and disappear. And then this material had all the appearances of salt, but it wasn't salt. The salt had gone. What Jesus is saying here, I think, is maybe guard your heart. Because if you don't guard your heart, you might dissolve the good qualities that God's put in there. We need to guard our heart so that we continue to act as salt. Interestingly, Clarence Jordan says that as Christians, we should be crowned or crucified, but not dumped. (laughs) By this, I think he means we should be praised or or persecuted, but shouldn't be considered with indifference. You know, as Christians, as salt, we should either be totally rejected by people because people make them so angry about what we're doing, We're persecuted, rejected. Or we should be praised for saying, this person is acting like God here. What we shouldn't be is Christians who the world sees with total, total indifference. Because we're not acting as seasoning, we're not acting as preservative, we're not acting as prophetic in society. Because then salt is just worthless, just thrown out. I think Jesus really is saying here that... um, It's just preposterous to think about salt losing its saltiness because that's not what it's meant to do. You're meant to be salty, Christian. Keep your saltiness. Because if you lose your saltiness, then there's no point in you being a witness. Therefore, I think Jesus has an expectation for us to be salty. I think there's a definite expectation We should be salty. Next, salt is such that a little goes a long way. Have you ever had some chips and you've had some salt in in a little pot and you poured it on your chips and the top's fallen off and you've got your chips are totally covered in salt and you try and eat it and oh no, no. Maybe that hasn't happened to you, but too much salt, terrible. A little bit of salt, fantastic. 
You know, sometimes I think people try and come on a bit too strong with their saltiness, and that can put people off. You know, a little bit of salt goes a long way. Sometimes we're told to think big. I think sometimes thinking big can put us off. We need to think small. (laughs) A little bit of salt is all we need. You may consider yourself small and inconsequential as a person, but you've got the Holy Spirit in you as a Christian, and you can make a difference no matter who you are or where you've come from. The other thing I think Jesus is using salt here because the Christian community was small compared to the rest of society. But even a small community can make a big difference in society when it's got God on their side. Weaknesses, don't worry about your weaknesses. God's strength is bigger than your weakness. So that's salt. But then Jesus connects salt also with light. What about light? (laughs) I think that here he's saying he's expecting us to shine. He talks about a city on a hill, a light under uh, a bowl. I think he's saying, you know, nobody puts a city on a hill and expects it not to be seen. Nobody gets a light and puts it under, uh, under a cover. It's just not done. And God is saying, I am putting you, my light, in the world as a city on a hill. I am putting you, my light, in the place and I'm not going to cover you up. I'm expecting you to shine. I used to think it was us, we had to make sure that we shone. I don't think it's that. I think it's God expecting us to shine. God is expecting it from us. He's saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm not putting you on a hill and not expecting anybody to see. I'm not putting you under a cover. I expect you to shine. As Christians, we're meant to be shiny people. John Bloom, uh, who writes for uh, Desiring God, says, Shiny people haven't necessarily been the smartest or most articulate or most talented or the most publicly influential platforms, but they've been the most servant-hearted and sacrificially loving people. That's a shiny person. That's a shiny person. He goes on to say, They are the ones who find God's steadfast love better than life. They've consistently loved others in word and deed. Their words and deeds have sometimes been tender, other times been tough, like the salt, prophetic salt, depending on the need. Their actions have demonstrated that they truly consider others more than themselves. They pursue the others' good more than the others' approval. It's not what shining people do, but why they do it and how they do it that makes them literally remarkable People talk about them. They want to be like them. Some praise them, others slander them. But it's their doing, not talking, that sets them apart. And we found ourselves both drawn to them and unnerved by them. That's a shiny person. Let us shine before God and man. Because our shining then shines brighter when we do good works. And our shining light points to God. And a little light can break the darkness.
just like a little bit of salt, a little light can break the darkness too. I think that kingdom influence then is always incarnational. Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself and came to earth as a servant in, in human form. That was the incarnation. But that incarnation hasn't stopped. Jesus is still... Uh, there's the incarnation still now through Christians. Jesus' presence is on earth through Christians. And as we um, tap into society, we make a fantastic difference. I have a hero, and this is somebody you may or may not have heard of, and his name's Clarence Jordan. I mentioned him in the talk. He was a theologian farmer. He did a BSc in agriculture, then a PhD in ancient Greek. What a combination. (laughs) But he put the two together. And in the 40s through to the 60s, uh, he set up a, uh, a thing called Koinonia in Georgia, in America. And Georgia in that time was a place steeped in racism. But he set up a farm where he thought that he could use his skills as a farmer and his skills as a theologian, and he set up a community where the poor, whether black or white, could farm together. Boy, did that cause trouble in Georgia. (laughs) He was being salt and light to his community. His farm was started in 1942. Um, He had um, a great uh, uh, passion for what he did. It's worth reading a little bit about him. But he had, uh, and this is described in an incarnational, fervent love for the poor, Um, He believed that a spirit-filled fellowship rather than an empty tomb was proof of Christ's presence with us. And Clarence pointed to his farm in Koinonia as a continuation of the incarnation of Christ. He suffered a lot. Ku Klux Klan called on him. His fences were cut, his crops were stolen, Um, garbage dumped in his property... Truck's engine was ruined with sugar placed in the gas tank. 300 fruit trees were chopped to the ground. He had a roadside market where he sold his produce. It was bonded several times and eventually destroyed. Uh, Night riders sprayed uh, machine gun bullets at the houses in his community. Fires were set on the property and crosses were burned on the lawns of his black friends. But he carried on what he was doing. When, when he couldn't sell, this is what I like about him, he had a really good sense of humour. <clears throat> when he couldn't sell um, his peanuts, which he farmed, by the roadside, he started a mail-order business. And this was his marketing theme. Help us ship the nuts out of Georgia. <laughs> which was a little bit of a double meaning for the trouble that he was having with the racists and the nuts he was producing uh, for for his farm. Help us shift the nuts out of Georgia. But he he led a a fantastic life and witness for what it meant to influence for the kingdom. And in the year before he died, um, this other guy came to see him and was so moved by what he was doing, um, he was uh, moved to start up the Habitat 
for Humanity, where it's just a, uh, another program they built houses for people. And that came out of what Clarence Jordan was doing. He influenced loads of people. He even wrote um, a version of the Bible in the vernacular of the locals, where Jesus comes out and says to the disciples, Howdy! <laughs> he was a great character, but he was salt and light in his community. I want to finish with a poem. This is something I was writing just before I went to bed last night to sum up what I'm talking about. It's called Jesus Looked Me in the Eye and Said. Jesus looked me in the eye and said, My spirit I give to you. Now become my instrument. There is so much work to do. You are now my hands and feet, complete the things I say, in order for my kingdom to grow larger day by day. You are salt, don't forget the influence you possess on those you meet and share your time, you can truly bless. You are light, designed to shine, stronger by the hour. This gives glory to the Father and demonstrates his power. Amen.